0: My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. I see a few people who are visiting. We're so glad that you're here. We'd love to get a chance to get to know you. Today we have a friend and guest who's going to be speaking today, Pastor Donna Johnson. (laughs) And uh, Donna and I have been friends for, I think it's 18 years Mm -hmm. because that is the day that I walked onto campus at Bethel University and we became friends pretty early on. And you've been serving as a in, in various roles. Yep. Like, at, you're a campus pastor at Bethel for Correct. 19 years, you said? 19? I've been at Bethel for 19, 19 years. 19 years. So she yeah. wanted me to tell you guys she started when she was 12. So that's when yes. that started. So yes. that's good. Uh, Donna is passionate about prayer. She's passionate about spiritual development and people getting closer and closer to Jesus. That's what yep. I see when I watch your life and been able to come alongside your life. Uh, she's married and has two kids and... <laughs> Lives not too far from here and has been a huge blessing to Bethel, but also many other communities. And so it's just a huge honor for someone who I love and respect so much to come and bless all of you guys by sharing from God's word with everybody. So she's going to continue on in our conversation we've been having about Jesus as peace. So can we give her one more round of applause? Thank you,
1: Stephanie. Um, it's it's good to be here. I'll tell you why. Because I've told people about Mill City. Anytime that students are interested in checking out a church, there's usually three or four churches that I refer to and say, you got to check them out. They're great people. Mill City, number one, number two. And yet I had never been here. (laughs) But it's because I know your pastors. They're quality people. who love the Lord and I always say it's a healthy church and so I appreciate you Stephanie thank you for introducing me thank you Mike for inviting me Uh, there are a few people I know here so it's good to have some familiar faces though I really can't see you everyone's a little bit blurry because the lights really are in my eyes so I know that I'm standing in the right spot am I or should I move over am I good okay good All right. So you talked about me continuing this series on peace, which is not quite true, because you gave me permission to do whatever I wanted. (laughs) Okay. So I I just wanted to put that out there. So this is the deal. This is where we're going to start. We're going to start. Start. We are going to talk about Lent and some of the things that maybe some of you guys have given up. So we will talk about that, and then I'm going to kind of move into this idea of submitting, surrendering, relinquishing control. I swear it connects. At least it connects in my head. I'm not sure it's going to connect with you, but it connects in my head. So maybe the message really is for me, and you just get to be a part of my conversation I'm going to have by myself. But this is what I'm hoping, that you will identify Something that God is going to ask you to let go of today or in the coming weeks. That's, that's my hope. So this Lenten journey with its climax in Holy Week, this is going to happen within a week or so. Good Friday and Easter is about participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It means dying to an old way of being, an old identity, and being born into a new way of being, centered on God once again. So many of us give up something to refocus on God. You may fast. You may pray more. You may be more intentional. You may be more intentional about giving of resources, of your time, whatever the case may be, something is usually given up, and it's all about refocus. But let me just say this. We give up something, and then we end up taking it back. Because there's actually an expectation in the Bible when it talks about fasting. It says in Matthew 6, verse 16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face, that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus is referring to a familiar Jewish practice done in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. It was common for the Jews to fast two days a week, Monday and Thursday, but the danger in fasting was doing it for the wrong reasons to really elevate your religious status status, as though you were superior to others. These were the days when people would be viewed in the marketplace and you could see how unkept and how disheveled they were. Which is why Jesus said, don't disfigure your face or look ungroomed, which brings attention to yourself. But here's the but. Don't do that. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to put on oil. I want you to put on some lotion and stop looking ashy. Wash your face, don't be obvious about it, and enjoy the submission you are learning through fasting because this is the reward. The discipline of fasting shows that you have a hunger for God. So when you fast, don't distort. Put on oil because the reward is hunger for God. Carl Lundquist, he was the third president at Bethel University, and he realized the importance of fasting as a discipline later in his life, as Dr. Kim, the Korean pastor in Korea, shared a story with him about how when he fasted, there was a, a change of heart for this uh, Korean government official or this police because they needed some uh, um they needed a particular location for ministry. And the pastor, Kim, fasted about this. And God changed this person's heart. And Dr. Lundquist said he realized it had not been a discipline in his life. And it occurred to him, it says in Matthew 6:16, 6, when you fast, not when you feel like fasting or when you fast during Lent, it's when you fast. So there's an assumption that at some point you are going to do this. Carl Lundquist would fast during lunch, and he would spend time in the flame room at the seminary where it was quiet and it was done without notice. So when you fast, don't distort your face. Put on some lotions there's a greater reward because of your obedience. Another thing you might do during Lent is pray. When you pray, as it says in Matthew 6, 4 through uh, 6, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Again, it was part of the Jewish tradition to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night, and whatever they were doing, they would stop and pray. And it could be done inconspicuously, or it could be done to let everybody know with pretension, and display, here I am, I'm praying my best King James Version prayer. So everybody could see you as opposed to praying in communion with God. Jesus is not condemning public prayer because obviously he prayed in public. The issue is not the prayer but again, the motive in which it's done. And sometimes we get kind of caught up in how we sound and who's listening and our focus becomes more or less on us as opposed to the Holy Spirit leading. Because the focus is not about being seen in prayer so we can look spiritual and we can play the part. That's not, should be the focus. But here's the but. Jesus is saying, he's offering you a secret place where no one will see you or hear you. Jesus even mentions the pagans who babble and use many words. Much like the priests of Baal, in which they ask God from morning till night to answer them. It was like the blah, 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 blah. God is not hearing that. Praying does not inform God of what things... I'm sorry, praying does not inform God the things of which he is already aware of. It is quite He's quite aware of our needs before we even ask. But asking is showing dependence on our need for God. So when you pray, don't do it to be seen. You do it in a secret place because it's about intimacy with God. So you fast, you pray because these are expected. And then maybe during this time, you decided to give of your time or your resources. And in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, it says, So when you give, again, an expectation, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have reached the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. See that your reward may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Religious leaders of the day were known for almsgiving. So that was giving to the poor. Poverty was common in this agrarian society. But it was a well-organized system in the synagogue where relief was given to the poor. There were even regulations about how much a family could give in which not to impoverish their own family. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they were also known to be giving not out of generosity, but to be seen by others. So that's why Jesus uses the term hypocrite numerous times in the text, which means what one appears to be is different from what one is. It's from the Greek word, "hypocrites," which was a term used by actors on a stage that played different roles using masks. And they were pretending to be something that they weren't. So their motive was all wrong. They were more concerned about, again, being seen. And they put on these masks to be seen by others. And their satisfaction came from the accolades that they got. It wasn't about God. It was about the human accolades. And this can play out very easily in our lives and every day. When we just happen to mention how much we gave to a particular organization or for some relief, or just happen to mention how we serve in this community or another community to help the poor and the needy. It does matter what you do and we always need to check our motive. So it's easy to drop info on what you have done, especially in social media, because that promotes ourselves. But this is the but. This is how God wants us to do it. Don't even tell anybody. Don't praise yourself. Don't give yourself glory, because it doesn't matter if anyone knows that you served or cleaned up after a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane. What is most important is that God sees what you're doing. Unless giving is done with the correct motive, there is no commendation from God. It has no spiritual value. There is no comparison to our earthly honors and accolades, and then in comparison to our eternal rewards. And the reward is obedience. So when you give, don't give like the hypocrite. And don't tell anybody. And the reward is obedience. So all of these things we're expected to do already. When we fast, when we give, when we pray, we're to do it with the right motive, which is to refocus and glorify God through it. And then we do this, and then we may take it back. So some of you may have given up desserts, right? All right, maybe no one gave up dessert, okay? Or you gave up meat. You gave up social media. And then after 40 days, okay, our time's up. It's, it's Easter. We can have dessert again. We, we can eat meat again. I'm going back on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and whatever else is out there, right? But what is the point if we're going to just do this temporarily? To temporarily incorporate these practices in our lives, then we stop. Because this is what temporary looks like. Becca Rogers, who used to attend here, I think used to attend here, was an intern here, I believe, and she had posted on Facebook, this is like six, seven years ago, uh, anybody want to do a 30-day fast, I'm sorry, 30-day sugar, sugar fast? And I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll do it with you. I, I don't really know what I was thinking, but I said I would do it with her. She introduced me to Zumba, which was great. And we did this 30-day fast, a very long 30 days, for someone who's used to sugar in their coffee. Um, It was quite the sacrifice. And let me just say, it was good. It was all good. I I, I gave up sugar. I, I gave up sugar in the coffee. Um, I lost a few pounds. I felt good. I'm like, yeah, this is good. And and then I stopped. And then I began to incorporate sugar back into my life. And this is this is probably the best thing that did happen. I actually stopped using artificial sweetener. And I'm like, this is a good thing to stop. And I did. And I did that for a number of years. Unfortunately, it began to creep back into my life within the last year. Because artificial sugar just tasted artificial, right? It's just a bitter, it's just an aftertaste. I didn't like it anymore. And then within the last year, it started to creep back in and that Diet Coke was really good. And that, this was, mm, yeah. And then I realized, okay, I've allowed something back into my life that I said I didn't want to. I didn't really let go. And this is my point. Lent should be a springboard to giving up something forever, to relinquish control of whatever that thing is, not to be brought back. And relinquish really means to surrender, to hand over, to let go for good, not just as a way to refocus for 40 days, but to go to the next relation, next level in our relationship with God. And when I was thinking about you guys today, and I'm like, what? what is it I'm going to talk about? Uh, literally, the word relinquish came into my brain. And I'm like, that must be God. So let's just figure out, how do I talk about this? And as someone who loves the Old Testament, I found an Old Testament story that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. So how do we relinquish control? It's about giving up so it becomes something real and meaningful and not just something that we're gonna do between March 6th and April 18th. Because we go through our life clutching our hands like a toddler who says, I do it, I do it myself. We got some, I I saw like a hundred toddlers over here. Seriously. I've never seen that in the church. That is very cool, Stephanie and Mike, that you guys allow that. And like, nobody panics. Like, okay. But you know toddlers i do it i do it myself and we hold our hands like this and and we may go like this but it's it's easy to close right it's not often that we'll go like this like i surrender i am giving up everything lord take seriously take the wheel we the only time that we probably have our hands out like this is when we're asking for money yo can i get some money (laughs) right we don't we Don't normally, because we're usually like this. So this is what relinquishing looks like, and this is what it doesn't look like. And I want to tell you the story of Jeremiah, King Zedekiah, and ebed malek Or I'm going to call him Malik. I'm going to go back and forth. He's Ethiopian, so I can call him Malik, okay? So listen, the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to focus on chapters 36 through 39. No, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to summarize it. Don't panic. I'm watching the time. Okay, I come in a Penteco- from a Pentecostal church. We could be here until three, but I know y'all at, at 1130, you know, people are going to start moving. So um, I got 10 minutes. Okay, so Jeremiah, he's this prophet in Judah, and he began in the, uh, the middle of King Josiah's reign, and Jeremiah, he loved his people. He prayed for them, but he was honest about what the Lord would tell him. So in chapter 36, he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem to King Jehoiakim, which is King Josiah's son. Jehoiakim did not like the news, hearing what was written on the scroll shared by Barak, the secretary of Jeremiah. So Jehoiakim hears this news about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's not happy. And this information had been dictated by Jeremiah to Barak. And Barak shared it with Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim's like, no, 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 no. I I don't want to hear anymore. Takes the scroll, throws it into the fire. You can read this yourself, seriously. Throws it into the fire. And as a result of that disobedience, he was punished. So then we move into chapter 37. Josiah's other son, King Zedekiah, is now the king of Judah. Is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually asked Jeremiah, can you pray to God on their, our behalf? So you've got his brother who's like, no, I don't want to hear it. At least Zedekiah is sort of interested in hearing what God has to say. So Babylon starts encroaching on Jerusalem, then withdraws because the Egyptians had started to march out of Egypt. But Jeremiah gets another word from the Lord. And God says, and I love the sarcasm, but sarcasm of God. Tell that king who sent you to inquire of me that Egypt is going not going to support you and Babylon will come back and attack and burn your city down. Zedekiah hears this a second time because you know we heard it the first time. So this isn't good news. Jeremiah is thrown into a dungeon because the officials think he is going to desert them by going into Babylon. So the king inquires of Jeremiah again. So what has the Lord said to you? Like, uh, for me, it was pretty clear the first and second time. For Zedekiah, he just needed to hear it again. You will be delivered into the hands of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah appeals to him to put him in a different space because he was down in the dungeon. It's like, come on, I'm going to die here. So he puts him out in a courtyard. Then chapter 38 begins with the official saying to King Jedekiah, that Jeremiah, he is not helping us. He is discouraging the army. So Jeremiah the prophet is telling them, whoever stays in the city will die by the sword and famine or plague. But whoever goes into Babylonia will live. So with the king's permission, what these people do, because they don't want to hear this message, is they put him in a cistern. cistern they They let him down with ropes. And it's filled with mud, so the cistern is dry. But then there's a man, an Ethiopian, by the name of Ebed Malik. And he's like, wait a minute, this this ain't right. This man, what they have done to him is wicked. And so the king, Zedekiah, then gives them permission, uh, Ebed gives them permission to actually go get Jeremiah. And he tears up these rags, and he puts down the rags because they let him down with ropes, and he didn't want him to get hurt. So he was to put the rags under his arms so he wouldn't get hurt as they lifted him up out of the cistern. This is the deal. King Zedekiah is lacking the backbone he needed to, to heed to what Jeremiah was saying. He kind of speaks to him in secret, but he has too much fear because he fears the army. He fears what other people are going to say. And so he says to him again, this is now the fourth time in Jeremiah 38. It says, then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty of Israel says, if you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and the city will not be burned down and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. They are not going to hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, if you refuse to relinquish control, This is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you. Those trusted friends of yours, your feet are stuck in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out of Babylonia. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylonia, Babylon. And this city will be burned down this is what's happening zedekiah again not heeding to the word given to him to surrender to relinquish control it's like his fists are like this i do it myself no he has been told three or four times what's going to happen he is given the chance to surrender he has offered a way of escape there is going to be destruction but there is a way of escape. He can be saved with his family, but he is so busy and he's worried about what others are going to think. But then Ebed, the foreigner, the Ethiopian, working in the king's palace, saw this godly man who was treated unfairly and he took the time to advocate for him and Jeremiah to make sure he got out of the cistern safely. And as a result, God was with Ebed. He trusted God, and he was saved. He received salvation in the midst of judgment, and he was saved because he trusted God. So when you compare Jeremiah and Zedekiah, Jeremiah as God's spokesman, He was direct, he was firm, he had faith in God despite threats and despite harshness. King Zedekiah, he did not want to listen to God. He was indirect, he was weak, he rejected the counsel of God in the final hours of the fall of Judah. Comparing Zedekiah and Ebed, Malik, King Zedekiah does not recognize God's message. His privilege makes him questioned four times. He's indecisive. Ebed, Malik, he recognizes the importance of God's message. He's a servant who acts on compassion for Jeremiah and he's very decisive. Ebed and Jeremiah represent those who are faithful. God will be faithful in return. The World Bible Commentary says this about Zedekiah, Faithlessness is not a rejection of the Lord, but an inability to act in courage when the pressure mounts. He paid a terrible price for his indecision, much like the church in Laodicea that says, because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. And this is the result. This is what happens to King Zedekiah in Jeremiah 39. When, king, when, Jer- king, when Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed towards Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon in Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced sentence on them. There in Riblah, the king of Babylon, slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put on Zedekiah, put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The last thing Zedekiah saw was his kids being killed before he was taken away in shackles. Four times, four times, Zedekiah did not listen. He was not willing to surrender, through the, though the message was consistent. And we can hear the same message from God and still not surrender because we want control. That's not what I want, God. We want control. So whatever you have given up for Lent, it's all good. But what is the next level? Because I, am a sh- I know there's a next level. None of us in here should be satisfied where we are with God. There is a next level. There's more that God wants to show you. There's more that God wants to reveal to you. So what is it that God is asking you to relinquish? What has he been screaming to you? Because one commentary said the Lord's mercy is available. More specifically, the offer of life rather than death. And I think of the scripture that talks about I've come to give you life and to give it to you in the full, more abundantly. But there's some things that we have to relinquish control of. And we don't because of fear, what others will say. And yet, in our disobedience, there could be death. Maybe not physical death. And is it worth it? I'm going to have the worship team just come up as I just close with this quick story. I ran into a student. uh, She's a grad student. Just the other day in the library at Bethel. I hadn't seen her in a while. She had asked me to be uh, a part of a prayer ministry that was dealing with the Ebola crisis. This was back in 2014, 2015. She was putting together, she was from West Africa, and she was putting together this prayer time. So she asked me to be a part of it. And she asked me, so how, how is everything, how are the kids? And I said, they're 16 and 13. Like, what, what else do I need to say? I, I have two strong-willed, opinionated children. And she goes, I understand. I've been there. I had to surrender them to God. And I'm like, and I I think I was so shocked with the word surrender. I didn't hear what she was actually saying. But this is what I got. She said something to the point of the kind of surrender I had to do with my children was the kind of surrender Abraham had to do with Isaac about putting Isaac on the altar, the obedience that it took, not knowing how God was going to provide, to put your child on the altar, that's surrender. We can sing it, we can say it, but what does it mean to actually surrender? And I don't know what you need to surrender today. I don't know what you need to let go of or give up. The reason I don't have a three-point, this is how you do it, is because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But this is what I do know. I have been asking God, help me to surrender. And what does that look like? Speak to me through your word. Speak to me through other people. I want to surrender my children. I want to surrender the thing that you are asking me to surrender so I can live. Because there's more. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, you gave me a word from Mill City today about relinquishing and I don't know what that means for each person hear but I know that is what I was supposed to say so father I'm trusting you that is going to land where it is supposed to land father God show us what we're supposed to give up past these 40 days show us what we're supposed to surrender make it clear to us Lord because we want more of you we want more of you Lord And so I thank you and I praise you for your faithfulness. Help us to learn more about you through your word. Through this story, Father. Through relinquishing control, through true surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.